you have your Bible with you today, you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, or it's printed there in your bulletin, the text for today. Kind of a long text, but a great story. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of this man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them, literally shrieked at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will surely make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, 
and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. This is the word of the Lord. And bless our hearing of it, Father, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. So this is four, number four of seven in our Desert Trees series. And what I'm trying to sort of unpack in this series is that being a serious Christian, now there are unserious Christians, but being a serious Christian in, in today's world, I've suggested is, is, is like trying to be a flourishing tree in a desert. And what I mean by that is this, what dehydrates our faith as Christians in today's world is actually not persecution directly. Persecution often acts like water on faith. And it's not necessarily what I thought as a young pastor, it's not, what's really hard about the modern world is not so much that there are direct, explicit attacks on what we believe as Christians. That may be, but that also tends to water faith, stir it up. The dehydrating thing in our world today is the assumption. This is so deeply embedded in our ways of life that it just feels obvious. The assumption that personal happiness is central. I mean, if life is about anything, that's what it's about. If life has a goal, it's to get to personal happiness. I mean, that's just, that is so woven into life today, we don't even think to question it. And the crazy thing about this is that it does not mean you can't believe in God. Far from it. But what it does mean is that God, for modern people, has become reduced to basically a psychologically useful idea. You might need God to be mentally healthy. You might need God to make you feel happy. It might really help you to have this sort of daddy figure in the sky and sort of feel like you have someone watching out for you. And so God becomes kind of basically a useful idea in our quest for personal happiness. Or maybe he's just kind of this vague power that I kind of really want to know the man upstairs is on my side if I get in a jam, that sort of thing. This is very different from what it used to be, of course, because at one time, life, daily life in the world, made us 
feel dependent, dependent on powers of nature. Like the weather, for example, could really mess up your world in ancient times. <laughs> we felt, just because of the way life was, we felt dependent not only on nature, but the kind of spirit beings that we understood ruled over nature. And, we, and there was a sense in people, just very instinctive, intuitive sense, just living in the world, that we're not only dependent on these powers, but we're somehow accountable to them. That if, if, if human beings did not obey the laws of nature and did not obey the laws of nature's God or gods, you were going to be in trouble. We just felt that because life reinforced that constantly. But, you know, in the modern world, it's so different, isn't it? Because we've now subdued nature. There's not very much about nature that we cannot hold at bay. Y'all are sitting here today in a climate-controlled room. We can just push things that used to affect us to the margins, and we feel very comfortable and very in control over nature. And we have certainly, in the modern world, moved past all those imaginary spiritual issues that used to concern us, and now we've got ourselves focused on the real-world, solvable social issues that we're all working on. It's just a very different feel, and it dehydrates that sense of dependence upon God and accountability to him that is so much a part of true faith. So that's our desert. But while that desert, our modern desert, it's our desert, I've tried to show you that our situation in the desert is not at all unique because God's people have faced so many deserts through history in which God's presence has not felt real and God's purposes in the world have not felt real. Some of these deserts have been very much personal deserts for people. Some of them have been more socio-cultural deserts, but God's presence and purposes have not felt real, you know, like us. They believed in God and his presence and his purposes and, you know, his, his saving work and all that, but it didn't feel real because of their circumstances. But sometimes we not only share with these older characters desert experience, sometimes when we look at their deserts, their ancient situations, we find their deserts were actually a lot like ours right down sometimes even to the details. And I want to take just a moment now and look at Abigail's world, her desert, her world. Now, to really fully appreciate the desert that Abigail, this woman Abigail, is living in, you need to notice both what is said about her personal life and also the kind of bigger story in which her very brief story here is nestled. And just think about, in light of her personal story and then this bigger story around her, like what props did she have for faith? What's, what, what in her world would have made her like seriously settle into her faith and be like, yes, this feels real? Was there anything like that? How real did God feel to this woman in the circumstances she lived in? Because on a personal level, you notice something I think modern people will very much relate to. On a personal level, she, her life is not happy. <laughs> in fact, I don't think it's probably too strong to say that Abigail is living in what we might call a domestic nightmare. I have friends who have been married to a person who is, as Nabal is described here, a person who is harsh, a person who is just badly behaved, a person who is so vile you just actually can't even talk to them. This is misery. You're bound to this person in covenant for life. It is miserable to be married to such a person. That's her life. That's what she gets out of bed to deal with every day. There's a concern as soon as you hear this guy's name. Now, you don't maybe know this because, you know, English words, you know, it's not, it's not obvious. But, you know, the word Nabal means a fool. 
I don't know what his parents were thinking. Um, but he is called a fool. That's his name. And it's like immediately like, yo, great, you know, a fine fellow. But it is interesting if you look at verse 3 that it is not Nabal's character that is described first. It is Abigail's character that is described first. And the impression we get of her in verse 3 is of a very intelligent, very thoughtful, very competent, and truly lovely lady. She's beautiful inside and out. Whereas the man, <laughs> as he is called, the man, he's one of these curious characters we meet sometimes in life and in literature who has somehow managed to become wildly successful in business and kind of stupidly rich, despite the fact that he is a narcissist. If you think I'm making that up, look at verse 11. You know, shall I take, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my sheer... I mean, this guy is just really all about self. He's probably a bunch of other things that I'm not allowed to say from the pulpit. Whatever that word is in your head, that probably works nicely. He's really a piece of work. He is mean, nasty. He kind of likes it. He likes to flex on people. You've got to wonder how he treats Abigail. You know, you wonder, like, what's her, life, what's her story been like? How, his, what's happened to her and her personal relationship with him? And you can also miss something else, which is the temptation for a lady in this situation to become a queen worthy of this kind of quote-unquote king. I take that from verse 36 where he is holding a feast like a king. And Nabal thinks of himself as a king. And it would be very easy, married to such a fellow, to become sort of like him. You know, if you're going to be like that, then I will be like that. And, and, and Abigail has a ton of wealth at her disposal. She has a lot of power at her disposal. And it would be very easy just to become a selfish witch. Living around this guy, you know, you want to act like that, then I'm just going to, you know, respond in kind and or, you know, just start, you know, working down the kind of, you know, bullying chain and just beating up on other people to take out my frustration and just become a witch. So that's her personal life. It's really awful. And then the severity of this desert, I think, becomes even more obvious as you go up a level and consider this kind of second level to her story. Because you'll notice if you're reading through Samuel that her micro story here is nestled in a larger social story. And it's interesting that her micro story in a lot of ways kind of mirrors this bigger story. Because we already know as you're reading through the Samuel scroll, this is not Abigail's story. This is actually David's story. You remember him, I hope, the uh, young shepherd who, much to his surprise, one day is summoned before the prophet Samuel and he is anointed to be the future king of Israel. Didn't see that coming. And there came an opportunity not long after that where there was a, a battle with the Philistines. You remember this story well from your Sunday school days and uh, David uh, with a, you know, a shepherd's staff and a sling and a few stones. He went up against the colossal giant champion of the, uh, the nasty Philistines from, from the, the west and he killed Goliath with a stone and a sling. And in the victory parades that followed that event, he incurred the homicidal envy of the existing king, who, of course, is King Saul. And we already know uh, at that point in the story that before David is even anointed, Saul was told by the prophet Samuel that because he disobeyed the word of the Lord, God was going to take his kingdom from him and was going to give that kingdom to his neighbor, 
Well, when he sees the streets full of dancing people celebrating David's victory over the Philistines, Saul realizes, oh, this is the neighbor, and he hates him, and he starts trying to kill him by every means possible. And by the time we get to this story of Abigail, David has been on the run as an outlaw ever since, probably for quite some time. And it's interesting to notice that chapter 25 is nestled between chapter 24 and 26, obviously, and in those two chapters are two stories in which David has opportunities himself to sneak up on Saul and kill him. And he will not do it. And he's very explicit about why. Because this king, nasty piece of work that he is, is the Lord's anointed, God's anointed, and I will not lay a hand on him. This kingdom is not mine to seize because it belongs to God, and I will not touch the Lord's anointed. That's the bigger story. Now, why did I say that Abigail's little story, in a way, mirrors that larger story? Well, you notice very quickly that Abigail, in this little story, and David, in this bigger story, they are living in very similar deserts, aren't they? And actually, if you think about it, the deserts they're living in very much resemble the modern one that you and I are living in, because both Abigail in her home and David in this larger national story, they are each living in a realm that is ruled by self-focus and self-gratification and self-glorification. King Saul is self-focused, self-gratifying, self-glorifying. So much so he's willing to kill somebody that he sees as a rival. Nabal is self-focused, self-gratifying, self-glorifying, and as a result, these two realms, one small, one big, have become utterly unneighborly. And this is not foreign to us in our modern desert, is it? One of the things you see as you look at the modern world, and you see it in these two stories here, is that a realm that is ruled by self is not a good place, is it? It is often in the end not even a safe place. When you're living in a people where from kind of the top on down, it's just all about self, that place will not, that realm will not remain a good place to live or perhaps even a safe place to live. You see this in homes. You see this in nations, right? You guys see this, it's, it's, it's not actually hard to see once you look, that when people, especially people in power, start like Nabal to act like they are kings, and they do not see themselves anymore as accountable to God. They do not really acknowledge in any way that there is a high king to whom I am accountable, to him, to his law of love. That must bind me. It must guide and shape my life. That's not how they think, that they wouldn't acknowledge that at all. It kind of doesn't matter whether you have a tiny little you know, domestic situation or a giant civilizational situation where that is the heart of people. It is a matter of time before neighbor relations will unravel. Such a realm will, just give it time, become ugly and harsh and inhospitable and maybe even dangerous. It's true in homes, schools, businesses, churches, nations, you name it. And you look at Nabal, and he is so self-absorbed in verses 10 and 11. I mean, this is actually quite amazing, his selfishness. He is so full of himself, he disregards kinship, you notice that Nabal is a Calebite. He is from Caleb, Caleb's line. Well, that means that he and David are relatives. They're both from the tribe of Judah. And yet Nabal doesn't care in the least that you're my family. Don't care. Get off my lawn. 
He disregards need. David's trying to feed 600 men in a wilderness. You ever try to make dinner for 600 people in the wilderness? And, you know, David's probably not even a great cook. And there they are, and they're just struggling along. And he shows up on a feast day when there's like a king's banquet, and he just says, you know, whatever you can spare, just a little bit of, and Nabal's like, get off my lawn. He disregards the obligations of gratitude here. We learn later from some of Nabal's servants that David and his men, you know, because life as an outlaw running, literally trying not to get killed, you know, gets boring. They just stop and take care of these shepherds of Nabal. They just take time out of their, I don't know, trying to, you know, preserve themselves from being slaughtered. They just take time out to protect Nabal's, he's, he's, he just has no interest in being grateful. He doesn't have any interest whatsoever in the even bigger issue of who is David in God's plan for Israel. I mean, Abel's just like, just get off my, get out of here. In no time. He's that full of self. And it's easy, you know, I, you look at someone like that. It's, I've, you know, maybe you met people like this. It's easy to say you would never become like that. You'd never sink to that level. You know, the thing about Nabal is it's really sobering. He really just embodies the spirit of our father, Adam, who fathered us all, who thought himself king, and this had no real regard for the, the goodness or the law of the high king. There is a Nabal, there is a fool in every heart. This is her husband. That's Abigail's world. But I'd like you to notice what kind of a tree Abigail is. We've looked at her world. Now I just want to take a moment and look at Abigail's wisdom. Look what a tree this woman is in this whole context. And to fully appreciate Abigail's treeness, <laughs> her treeness in this desert, you, you kind of have to notice just one other circumstantial detail that I haven't mentioned. Not only is her personal life full of suffering, not only is she living in a context of sociocultural madness, in a country ruled by a madman, a homicidal fool, what is not maybe quite so obvious is that this is a religiously barren place to live. There is no more tabernacle that Moses built. The Ark of the Covenant, on which God's presence rests, is now in hiding and there are now no priests in Israel. Do you know why? Because a few chapters ago, Saul, in one of his homicidal rages, had all the priests killed, except one who's now with David. There is also now no prophet in Israel, because we learned at the beginning that Samuel, who is the closest thing that Israel has had to a national spiritual leader since Joshua, he's now dead. This woman has no church, she has no Bible except whatever you know, oral fragments she has gleaned from the books of Moses as they're recited in Israel, to the extent they even are, because the thing is, she's also surrounded by a time of just unbelievable moral and spiritual decline. You ever read the end of the book of Judges? That's Abigail's world. Sordid stuff going on from the clergy. Well, there were clergy and judges at the time of the judges. There aren't even clergy now, but from the clergy on down, just really morally disgusting stuff. This is her world. She doesn't, have, she doesn't come into a church like this. She doesn't listen to preaching or be able to get on you know, sermon audio or you know, listen to YouTube stuff to help her out. She's got nothing, literally nothing, to support her faith. And yet, what do we see and what do we hear? You know, years ago, there was a, a Jewish rabbi and family therapist named Edwin Friedman. And he wrote a book called Failure of Nerve. Uh, it was a book about leadership. It's probably the best thing I've ever read on leadership. Highly recommend it. And in Failure of Nerve, uh, Edwin Friedman pointed out, he had kind of a simple thesis that he developed. 
Very profound, though. He said, strong leaders can lead well in tumultuous, conflicted, emotionally reactive situations. And the reason they can lead well, even in those terribly difficult situations, is because they will not let themselves get sucked into the cycles of anxiety, as he described them, that are happening in that situation, where I have something that's making me anxious, and I react to you, and then that makes you feel anxiety, and you react to me, and we end up in this, what he called, emotionally fused cycle of reaction. I know a little bit about this because I do marriage counseling, family counseling, as did Friedman. But good leaders, strong leaders, Friedman said, they practice what he called self-differentiation. And he defined self-differentiation very precisely, and I love this definition. He said self-differentiation, this is what characterizes great leaders, it is charting, charting one's own way by means of one's own internal guidance system with minimum reactivity to the positions or reactivity of others. When you see a great leader, that's what you see. They chart their own way by means of their own internal guidance system with minimum reactivity to the positions or reactivity of other people, said Friedman. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I believe in the living God, and for believers, do you know what our internal guidance system is? The fear of the Lord, right? You fear the Lord by the Holy Spirit. That is the internal guidance system. When you believe in the living God, you fear the Lord. What that means is you trust God. Like legitimately trust Him no matter what is happening. He is still trustworthy. And you scrupulously obey Him because He is the high king. And so believers can be a calm, non-reactive, constructive, righteous presence, even in the very worst situations, precisely because of this internal guidance system that trusts and obeys the high king. When you know who God is by faith, that enables you to have internal peace literally no matter what. It enables you to have moral resolve no matter what the crowd is doing. It enables you to have an unruffled confidence that just stands, and having done all, still stands, because God. It enables you to have a steady commitment to virtue when you are tempted to fight fire with fire. Now, the biblical word for that fruit that is produced by the fear of the Lord, the biblical term for that is wisdom. And I'd like you to notice that Abigail, circling back to her finally, Abigail stunningly embodies the wisdom that comes from fearing God. She, she embodies wisdom in contrast not only to Nabal. That, I hope, is, is clear. It's pretty obvious how this woman's quiet, unruffled prudence and discernment and generosity and care how that contrasts with this whiny self-centeredness you get with Nabal, the fool. His absolute inability to read the room. And then you have, you have Abigail, an embodiment of 
wisdom that comes from fearing God. But it's interesting, the contrast here, the bigger contrast is not between Abigail and Nabal. The bigger contrast is between Abigail and David. Because David's lost his mind a little bit here. It's interesting that years later, long after Abigail, well, not long necessarily, but sometime after Abigail's, uh, uh, there's a book that'll be written called Proverbs, right? And that book will depict God as a father speaking to his son, a future king, speaking to his son, a future king, through the mouth of a lady who is named Wisdom. That Lady Wisdom, God's own wisdom, speaking to this future king, will later actually take form and be embodied in the Proverbs 31 wife at the very end of the book. And I do wonder if some of the imagery in that final chapter is drawn from Abigail's story. But you notice here, Abigail not only fears the Lord herself, her trust in God is quite astonishing. Her commitment to obedience to God is quite astonishing. But she not only fears the Lord herself, you notice here she speaks a humble, it's incredibly humble, but it is a powerful word to, king David, to future King David that he, as God's future king, he needs to fear God too. She calls him out on this. It's interesting to me, a reactive wife, an anxious, conflicted, overwrought wife in this situation would have seen David's coming to kill her husband as a fantastic opportunity for personal relief. You know, if you're married to someone who is this much of an, I want to use the term, this much of an, you know what I'm thinking, and you find out someone is coming to take him out, doesn't that kind of like make your weak? I'm going to go meet David and tell him where this guy sleeps. Hooray! I'm going to get in tight with the future king. But she fears the Lord. And because she fears the high king, she sees and holds on to the priorities of the kingdom of the high king. David is the Lord's anointed. He needs to act like it. And you see here all the features of biblical wisdom. You see the compassion of wisdom. Because I love, Abigail does not get on her feminine high horse and ride off to yell at David about what a fool he's being. What she does is take him a feast. She understands wisdom guiding her heart that this man is hungry. He's probably even hangry. And he's got 400 men with him. He's frustrated. And they haven't eaten probably in days. And she just spreads this unbelievable feast to care, to show care for the very human needs here. You also see the courage of wisdom. Not just the compassion, but the courage. Because she risks Nabal's wrath. And I have to think it was probably quite intense. And she risks even her own life. Because what you see here as she goes out to meet David, it reminds David thundering toward her on with 400 men reminds you of angry brother Esau coming to kill Jacob back in Genesis. And she just walks into this. Talk about courage. She could just lose her life in an instant. But not only the compassion and the, the, uh, the courage of wisdom, you see also here the, the blazing clarity of wisdom. Because she just says to David as she falls on the ground before him, there's no pride or, you know, there's no harshness here, but she says, my Lord, you are fighting the battles of God. This is not human warfare, my Lord. You fight for the high king. And you need to fight his way. It's interesting, David has been so clear on this with Saul. But you know, sometimes when you look at big powers above you and you realize you need to trust God and not, you know, take things in your own hands, it's easier when there's these big things. There's something about this microaggression. From this 
twit of a relative that just triggers him. He just like, I'm going to take him out and all the males of his house. He's just so mad. Give me a sword. And Abigail says, if you want to win the battles of the Most High, my Lord, you must crush, you must crush the Nabal in your heart. You do not take matters in your own hand and shed innocent blood. You do not take vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. But she goes on, because that could be very hard. In so many words, she also tells David something else. She says, my Lord, you need have no fear in putting down your sword and entrusting yourself to God, because has not God shown you he is for you? He holds your life in the bundle of the living, my Lord. He has made promises to build you a house, a dynasty. And have you not, my Lord, already seen the power of this God to bring down your enemies? May I remind you what it is to watch God sling your enemies out like stones from a sling? Does this ring any bells, my Lord? God can still sling stones, my Lord. That's lady wisdom. And it is a stunning thing to notice in verse 35. David says, what language from a future king? I have obeyed your voice. Because that's what the king does when he hears the voice of lady wisdom. You know, you can talk here about outcomes Abigail saves the kingdom. I mean, if David goes down in flames morally right here, the kingdom's done. She saves the kingdom. That's beautiful. She lives to see Nabal's demise. She lives to become a queen of Israel. It's all good stuff. But you know, the most interesting question to me as I've thought about her story is how did Abigail cultivate the fear of the Lord under these personal and societal conditions? How did she cultivate that kind of fear of the Lord? What trellises... Did she build for the vine of her faith? How did she nourish that kind of internal guidance system? How did she grow such an internal guidance system? Because I want to know how you and I do it. Can I talk to you guys just for a sec as your, your loving pastor? How are you doing it? I know y'all are busy. I know you guys have a lot going on. I know that modern life comes at us thick and fast. The, I'm not asking this, I'm asking this sort of tongue-in-cheek. Are you guys Christians? Do you realize if you were a follower of Jesus the Christ, the most important question in your life, the most important question in your life, this matters more than your financial decisions, it matters more than your life choices of what you're going to do in your future vocationally, it matters Literally, there is not a more important question in your life as a follower of Jesus than this question. And by the way, this is also true of your children. The number one thing, I, you know, good for you if they end up being financially successful and well-educated and what the world calls, you know, bringing their A game, hooray. But the most important question as followers of Jesus is how are we cultivating fear of the Lord? How are we cultivating that burning heart that trusts and obeys the Most High, without which it matters not if you gain the world? 
How are we training our hearts to remember that God is the greatest? And to rest in the fact that God is good. God is for us. And therefore, really, truly, who can be against us? When you and I become anxious and reactive about personal stuff we're experiencing, and it's very easy to do, isn't it? I've got stuff going on right now. I'm not just talking at you. When we become anxious and reactive about personal things or sociocultural things, some of you people just need to get off YouTube. When you're anxious and reactive, this is what is missing. Fear of the Lord. The simple fact that the Almighty laughs when the heathen rage. We must train our hearts to orbit around the fear of the Lord. And now I'm going to start, stop preaching and start meddling. I'm going to tell you this as an observation. Take it for what it's worth. In this church, we've gotten sloppy about Sabbath. You want to cultivate the fear of the Lord, remembering the Most High? Keep Sabbath. Some of us are way too quick to just find other things to do on Sunday besides be in worship. There is nothing more important than worshiping the Most High. There is nothing in your life that matters more than worshiping the Most High. We've gotten a little sloppy about prayer. I am sloppy about prayer. I'm acknowledging that as sin. Do you pray? If you do not pray, you do not fear God. We've gotten a little sloppy about exhorting one another daily while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. Can I say to you, being with Christians is not hanging out. It is building up each other's most holy faith. This is a biblical mandate, brothers and sisters. I know you're busy. I am too. But not to be supporting one another in our walk of faith is to be literally ignoring the gift of the body of Christ through which we're told the Holy Spirit works. Yes? This needs to be a priority. And we're a little sloppy right now. You got, you got issues with people in this church? Work them out. It's hard. Work them out. We must. It is a command to love one another. Because if we do not do these things, if we do not keep Sabbath before the Lord, remember, it's all from Him. If we do not pray because He is our rock and our hope, if we do not build each other up in fearing God together in this conflicted time, if we do not do these things, my friends, we will sin. We will sin. We will lose the plot. Hebrews says if you do not exhort one another, you will eventually, you will experience the hardening that comes by the deceitfulness of sin. We, will, we are opening ourselves to sin if we do not hold the fear of the Lord first. We'll find ourselves, I get here all the time, reacting to stuff in our personal and in our, our societal situation, reacting rather than acting with patience and moral uprightness and, and wisdom according to the will of our high king. It, it will come. Many Christians' lives are morally sloppy in private, and the reason for that is because they do not fear the Lord because it's not being cultivated by these trellises of Sabbath, prayer, fellowship, and so on. So what do we do with that? With this, I will close. The beautiful comfort for me, for you. You know, David wobbled. There's a greater David, and he never wavered in this. Jesus, the great son of David, the son of God, he never wavered one Quit from fearing the Lord and obeying the voice of Lady Wisdom. And you know the beautiful thing about the gospel 
is that God has taken all of that obedience of Jesus, that perfect obedience as the king, the son of the king, and he's reckoned that to your account. Jesus was faithful for you. He has satisfied the Father for you in your place. Never wavered. And now, because he did that for you, you are God's children, and the call of your Father, who loves you as he loves Jesus, you walk in Jesus' steps. Because today, in 2023, Lady Wisdom is still speaking. She is still speaking in the Word. She is still speaking through spiritual authorities. She is still speaking through mature saints. And brothers and sisters, with Abigail, let us hear her good news that our God reigns. Our God reigns. And let's obey. Let's obey that gospel. Amen. Make it so, our Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.